Do you want to start a podcast? I know I did, and you're listening to it thanks to the help of Anchor. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. It's totally free and has everything you need in a podcast in one place. You can record, edit your podcast right from your phone or computer, and distribute it to listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. Everything you need, all in one place, completely free. What's stopping you? Go get Anchor. One decision, one moment in time can change your entire life. What your dreams are, what your goals are, that moment, if it is big enough, can change the trajectory of your life. That's what happened one day for John Montague. And because of this one moment, he was never able to truly harness his athletic gifts. And now is more of a myth rather than an all-time Hall of Fame. Welcome to the Sports Moments Podcast, where every sports moment deserves its replay. I'm your host, Ethan Reese, your sports historian and giant goofball, which best describes this show, sports history and goofballness thrown in there. This is not a Dateline-only facts podcast. I will joke around, tell the most factually accurate story I can, but have a good time doing it. So now let's sit back and jump into the sports time machine. John Montague was born in August 25th, 1903 in Syracuse, New York. And what was going on in 1903? In 1903, Theodore the Teddy Bear Roosevelt was our president. And in February is when the U.S. was able to lease Guantanamo Bay from Cuba in perpetuity, which means forever. This is also the year the Ford Motor Company was started by Henry Ford, the first year of the Tour de France. The first modern World Series was held this day, this year, against the Boston Americans because we are Americans. And they defeated the Pittsburgh Pirates because Americans versus Pirates, who's going to win that? Americans every time. This was also the year that the first aircraft, modern airplane by Orville Redenbacher. No. (laughs) By the Wright brothers was flown in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. This was the first year Crayola crowns were made, and they were sold for five cents, containing eight colors, brown, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, violet, and black. The OG colors. And this was the year Harley Davidson was founded in Wisconsin. Other things to remember. Uh, 
loaf of bread costs four cents. Dozen eggs cost 27 cents. And milk, a gallon, costs 14 cents. These are averages over the whole country. And the average salary this year, 1903, $1,500 to $3,000. The average salary. Seems low. The average salary was about $1,500. It may seem low, but given inflation, that's about $50,000 a day. So it's not crazy to believe that. Also, remember, this was before the 40-hour week. People were working six, seven days a week, all day, every day. Whenever they could make a dollar, they were making a dollar out of 15 cents. If they made a dollar, that was big time for them. But yeah, it was a struggle time. And it was before we got the 40-hour work week, before OSHA, before safety, everything before that. This was a work hard, but work dangerous time. And this was the year John Montague or Le, Laverne, Laverne Moore was... Brought into our beautiful world. And he made it. Uh, one action was not beautiful. But it was an interesting character. We'll get into it. Let's jump into the time machine. Laverne Moore. Born in Syracuse University. Home to Syracuse. <laughs> born in Syracuse, New York. Home to Syracuse University. The orange man, because nothing strikes fear in an opponent like a man that looks like an orange. He'll peel you. He'll squeeze juice in your eye. Ow, that stings. He'll get juice into your cuts. Ow, that stings. <laughs> yeah, I just think that Syracuse has one of the weirdest mascots. Maybe we'll talk about weird mascots, because there is a lot of them. I'm talking about you. The Golden Slugs. <laughs> so, born to a blue-collar family at the turn of the century, 1903. His dad was very sports-oriented and really wanted his guys, his sons and his children to be in sports. And he was the all-star. The one that went above and beyond anyone else. He distinguished himself from his older brothers, his younger sisters, as an energetic and quick-minded kid. He spent hours working on his body. He would use the beams in the attic as basically a jungle gym, doing pull-ups, you know, swinging around, holding weights for long periods of times in the darks on his, from his strap to his wrist and his ankles. He stood there motionless like a real creep. <laughs> Could you imagine walking in there? Whoa, 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 whoa. Sorry. Sorry, Laverne. I didn't realize you were standing there with weight attached to you. <laughs> what are you doing? Why is it dark in here? Are you a vampire? 
Are you sure? Because why would you not do that? Why are you hanging upside down? Why are your your teeth have pointy fangs? Why are you wearing a cape? Why do you have a weird accent? No, 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 no. <laughs> no, 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 no. That did not happen. He was not doing all those crazy things, but he was attaching weights to his ankles and wrists and stood in the dark motionless for hours just to increase his stamina. Ankle weights makes sense. Wrist weights, I can understand it. You're going on a walk, throwing on those, making it more of a workout. Get it. I understand it. But in the, just stand there in the dark, weird kid. Yeah. A natural athlete, Laverne, excelled in baseball, basketball, football, skiing, swimming, golf, pool, darts, javelin, toboggan, horseback riding, centaur riding, ostrich riding. No. After golf, that was basically all he, that we know he was great at. But he was great at a lot of these things. And he was just a local talent on all the teams he was, that all-star for all of it. But it was golf that he just excelled more and he had more involvement in. He really pushed his goal for golf. And when he was seven, he found a golf ball on the street. And he just kind of fashioned a golf club out of a broom handle and a, a gas pipe, just a little rickety something. And he hit the ball directly through a plate glass window at a cigar store across the street, just shattered it all over the place. Cause uh, that's what kids do. Kids are basically bulls in China shops. If you don't know that they don't understand what glass means. They don't understand what anything means. They just destroy everything. That's what kids are good for, the more you know. <laughs> so, of course, his dad had a normal reaction. said, okay, here's the money for a window. Let's get you some golf clubs because you can really hit the ball. Yep, he got him clubs the next day. His brother, Harold, became his first instructor as a teenager, developed a powerful drive and some tricks. He had lots of tricks and weird Crazy things he used to do with the golf course. We'll go over some of the myths and legends of him on the golf course. One crowd pleaser was that he did when he was younger was to bury three golf balls on top of each other in the sand trap and ask which one should he hit. Every time he hit the designated ball flying, leaving the other two sitting in the stands. He was very accurate. And you'll see that a lot. He was very accurate with his with his clubs. And he even produced clubs to make it even better. Like his own clubs. Customize it. Because he was a golfing prototype. He got so good that he got a, a scholarship offer from Syracuse, the Orange Room, to become the orange golfer. To be painted orange. And golf for them because when you go to Syracuse you have to get painted orange weird thing they don't talk about it much but you have to get painted orange if you go there it's really weird no 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 you don't have to paint yourself orange but he did get a scholarship offer to Syracuse University for golf like he was going places and he could have really had something he also was you know involved in minor league baseball he was a pitcher um, for a small baseball team and he 
actually, spoiler alert, became friends with Babe Ruth and even golfed with Babe Ruth later on in his life. Through all this, everything's going great. He just ups and decides that he doesn't want to be in New York anymore and decides to move to Hollywood because Hollywood because California girls are unforgettable. Daisy Duke's bikinis on top. Now he went to Hollywood to go become famous in Hollywood, as everyone does, because you're going to make it big in Hollywood, because Hollywood is where it's at. So standing five foot ten, 222 pounds, nothing crazy, not too big, not too crazy. He became the club champion, but when he arrived, he changed his name to John Montesquieu, no longer Laverne Moore. Also known as Mysterious John, the Garbo of Golf, the Sphinx of the Lynx, he was larger than life on the golf course. One of his best friends that he got there was Oliver Hardy. Oliver Hardy, known as a comic legend, one half of Laurel and Hardy, the duo of the silent film era, where he did over 107 Short films, feature films, cameos, vast array of movies. He was huge at this time. And he was also a big man, over 300 pounds. He's the bigger guy, but they're all hard to prove. With a little mustache that's a little bit too close to Hitler, but Hitler's not around yet. He's not Chaplin, but kind of looks like Chaplin, but if Chaplin ate a lot. <laughs> so, yeah, so he's a big man. It's said that. He lived with him in his house on his couch, so another way for him to save money, Montague. Uh, he lived with him, but he's also said to have lifted this over 300-pound friend single-handedly, picked him up, and put him on the bar at the club. That is a lot. To be able to just lift 300 pounds and throw it, crazy amount. Crazy, crazy, crazy. He also... There is a story where he defeated 12 men in a locker room in a wrestling match. And he even stuffed George Bancroft into one of the lockers. And George was not a small man either. He was roughly 270 pounds himself. And George was, in case you don't know, an Academy-nominated actor. Was in movies Thunderbolt, Pony Express, Old Ironside. The original Wolf of Wall Street from 1929, which is about the financial crash for the Great Depression and not um, the Leonardo one where he takes a lot of opioids and scams a lot of people. He also was in um, the original Mr. Deeds, George Bancroft, another one of his friends in confidence. You can say being stuffed into a locker, maybe they weren't exactly friends, but they knew each other well enough to be in a wrestling match. Other notable famous friends he had were Richard Arland, another actor, and Johnny Weismuller, an Olympic swimmer, and he played Tarzan in a movie back in the day. But maybe his most famous friend back in the day was Bing Crosby. Bing Crosby was huge in the day. He was an American singer. Born the same year as Montague, they were the same age. Both loved to golf. 
And he actually has three stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame for motion picture, radio, and audio recording. He's one of only 33 people that have three stars. I didn't know that you could have more than one. So that's new to me. And nowadays, you don't hear Bing Crosby a lot except for Christmas time. He had a Christmas album still big to this day. But Bing was a great sports advocate. He uh, was appointed as, as an assistant football coach for Gonzaga, who doesn't even have football anymore. He owned 25% share of the Pittsburgh Pirates, as well as being an avid golfer, known to have a, a handicap of two, which is very good. It means you're just two over par to get yourself to par, which is very good for a guy that's not a professional golfer. And he also competed in the British and U.S. Amateur Championships and had five club championships at the Lakeside Golf Club in Hollywood where he met John Montague. The big Bing Crosby match. It's not a big match. They only had like a one-hole match. It was very unique in its style. Very unique as, you know, obviously it was probably done at the bar as a bet and was followed up on, on the course. After winning a round against Crosby, Montague proposed a bet to appease his complaining partner, Bing. They would play one hole, a par four, 366-yard hole, with Crosby using his club and Montague using a baseball bat, a shovel, and a rake. All stuff he had in his trunk of his car. So, being agreed, Crosby drove the ball about 250 yards and then got on the middle of the green but missed his putt for birdie by two feet. Montague tossed the ball in the air, hit it with the baseball bat, and got onto the green side sand trap within one hit. With a swipe of his shovel, he got into the middle of the green with about 30 feet from the pin. Then he got down on the ground, used the rake as like a pool cue, and sinked the ball within three, getting him a birdie, beating Ben Crosby. This got him a lot of love and attention, and he, Montague loved the attention, but he would refuse to talk about his past. He would talk about the moment, but he wouldn't talk about you know where he was from, how he became such a great golfer, anything like that. He only admitted to being an amateur golfer and claimed that some of his interests were in the Nevada mines for money-wise. So a sports writer, Grantland Rice, played a few rounds with Montague at the Lakeside Club and wrote an article that brought him into the public eye. And Time Magazine published the article in 1937. And he hired a freelance photographer to hide in the bushes and get a picture of Montague on the club where you could barely recognize him. It was, you know, a shot from far away. Cameras weren't great back then. You know, probably didn't have great lighting, but you had a picture of him to put in the magazine. But they went ahead and published this blurry picture. And this is what started down a path 
that would forever change Don John Montague. Because John Montague was not in Hollywood just living the Hollywood dream. He was actually running from the law and had changed his name because he did not want to be found. Because Laverne Moore had done something, been a part of something that he shouldn't have been a part of. So what happened was, after the Times posted this article, one of the police inspectors, John Corsart, John Corsart saw the article about John Montague in the Times and he was excited. He had been working a cold case for about seven years looking for a guy they they knew, Laverne Moore. But they had never been able to find him. The similarities in the article between John Montague in the article and Laverne Moore were very suspicious. And he asked the L.A. Police Department for help, was arrested, and in the jail he admitted his name was Laverne Moore from Syracuse University. And he was released on $10,000 bail and signed the papers John Montague, giving Laverne Moore as his alias. Since he was no longer on the lam and hiding from police, Montague decided, hey, now I can post for pictures and talk about who I am. He didn't reveal anything personal to the reporters. He just said he had made a mistake when he was a kid, and he's trying to make good for it. John Montague's celebrity friends were shocked to learn he was a fugitive and expressed their support for him because the guy they knew was not a dangerous felon. Being wanted was not totally new for Montague. Back in 1927, he was arrested for impersonating a police officer at a grocery store to a grocery store owner who sold alcohol during the Prohibition. He was trying to extort payments from the shopkeeper keep him quiet to keep him quiet about the liquor sales. He pleaded guilty to, these, to lesser charges and got off with paying a fine. So that kind of shows you he was starting to get into a bad crowd or a bad way with police. That's kind of a, a starting way to get into it. Uh, criminal, cr- criminality, whatever you want to call it. So on J- August 21st, 1937, John Montague was extradited to New York. He arrived at Union Station in Los Angeles for the three-day trips, he had porters carry 20 bags of his wardrobe and three. there were hundreds of people cheering his name as, as he's boarded a train. This was, to them, a celebrity. He had grown to an icon status. Like, the news, the media around this was growing because it was just, like, a crazy story, for one. But he was just known to, and had so many celebrity friends and support that it was almost like they didn't care what he did before. They just knew him then. So he arrived in New York and spent his 34th birthday in jail 
while the judge decided on his bail. The next day, he was released on $25,000 bond, which today, let me tell you, is half a million dollars. So, one, he had a lot of good rich friends. Two, he made a lot of money off those rich friends. Now, John hadn't communicated with his mom in seven years. He was away. He ran, left without a trace, and never talked to his family again. This is why most people get caught, because they can't stay away from their family and friends. John didn't care. He wanted to get away and be safe. Fortunately, he was too special to be hidden forever. When he was released, he told, and John Montague stayed in the Deerhead Inn, where he rented 17 rooms for himself and lawyers and friends from out of town. Photos of Montague signing autographs for teenage girls outside the courtroom were nationwide. This was a celebrity to everybody, but did they not realize what they were being charged for? Let's get into what he's actually being charged for. He is getting charged for armed robbery. And what happened? They say, in August 1930, a few years before he ended up in California, Hannah's Restaurant in Adirondack Mountains in New York were robbed by four men wearing masks, wielding revolvers. The dining room was connected to an apartment that the Hannah family lived in. I think I always think of Bob's Burgers. They lived above and the the restaurant was below. That's what I think of with this. One gunman forced Hannah and his wife to the floor while the other gunman bound and gagged the children. Are you kidding me? And so then another one of the robbers found the grandfather, Matt Cobb. And when he tried to defend himself, he hit him in the head with the butt of the gun. Then they had the wife... They forced her to empty the safe after and after the brawl with Matt Cobb and knocking him unconscious, the thieves escaped with about $750. About $15,000 in today's money. Was it worth it? I mean, it's such a violent crime. I know they didn't... All they did was assault with the gun and they were using the guns more as a scare tactic than actually to cause violence at least deadly violence but still a really violent act to do so after they escaped cops were staked out looking for bootleggers making a run when a speeding car shot by them and the chase was on two of the thieves were in a ford and the passenger turned off the headlights causing the driver to go into the ditch, and kill himself. This robbery involves someone dying. I know it's one of the bad people, <laughs> obviously. And, you know, when a bad person dies, you're like, eh, it's still a person dying and being involved in it. That's still crazy. The cops arrested the passenger. The other two accomplices were in a Pontiac that, stopped, that was stopped by a state police a little later. The passenger identified himself as Lawrence Ryan and talked the pair out of the situation. Smooth talker. Two days later, the driver turned himself in, and after fighting a set of golf clubs 
letters and driver's license and a draft notice in the trunk of the Pontiac, the police were convinced that Lawrence Ryan was really Laverne Moore of Syracuse. So we go into court now with all of this information for this heinous crime. And what do they have on John Monty? Why do they think it is him? In the back of the car that was pulled over, the Pontiac, they had a set of golf clubs, letters, a driver's license, a draft notice, all with the name Laverne Moore on it. None of this is actual forensic DNA evidence. For one, they had no idea what that even was. You have to go a lot by circumstantial evidence back in the day because you didn't have a lot of forensic evidence. This is a lot. But what did John Montague have? He had his mother and his sister both say he was sleeping. In the middle of the night, Laverne was sleeping so tight at home. Not going and robbing in the middle of the night. No, no. <laughs> it would have been great if they just broke out in a song and this became a huge musical. This is a movie. I swear this is a movie, and the only reason it's not a movie is because it sounds too far-fetched. But this would be a movie. And, and make it a musical with big musical numbers, and there you go for that song where the mothers and sisters are just singing, In the middle of the night. Be perfect. Okay. So they, they testify that he was home both the night of and the night after. And then one of the convicted accomplices in the robbery came forth and said the stuff in the trunk was his, but that was only because they had gone on a trip together and they were planning to go on another one the next weekend and they just left all the, his stuff in the trunk. And then, of course, John Montague, being the slick, smooth cat he is, goes up onto the stands stands he goes up on the stand and testifies for himself but you know the prosecutor and judge said this was one of the most violent vicious cases in his memory and he wanted to bring them to the full extent of the law and give them the maximum punishment was 10 years in prison wanted to set the standard for this but the jury deliberates for five hours. If you like a person, you're more likely to get them off than the case. It's harder to convict someone you like. It's easier to convict someone you don't like. Just human nature. It's part of it. So he's found not guilty. And the judge actually condemns the jury. He says, I disagree with this verdict. And you should be very disappointed in letting this man go free. He's a judge. He has to abide by what the jury says. But he can say, you guys are dumb. You guys are stupid. Why in the world would you do this? And he is let free. And now he can resume and take his celebrity status to an even new level. He doesn't have to go into hiding. So right after the trial, he legally changes his name to John Montague to continue that trajectory. And then he makes his first public exhibition match ever with Babe Ruth and unfortunately 
it was not a fun match. Some spectators showed up, waited 15 Montague waited 15 minutes for the crowd to move back far enough so he could take his second shot on the first hole. And by the ninth hole, the players were ready to quit because all their balls on the green had been walked away with without a putting. Basically, the fans were unruly and so overwhelming in this competition that they just gave up because they couldn't really play. It was... You either get, you either just play through these people and hit them, or just guess where the ball went. It was just it was just a nightmare. A week later, Montague is back in Hollywood, but he's no longer the fit and trim guy he was. He shows up much closer to three hundred pounds, overweight, due to so much partying, stress of the trial, everything that came with it. You know, he still has the skill. No one says you have to be super fit to play golf. It helps. Tiger Woods, one of the best golfers ever, was very fit, almost to a point where he may have injured himself getting fit and caused his career downturn, as well as some other shady stuff. But, <laughs> you know, Jack Nicholas, the other, I will tell you one thing frustrates me more than anything is Jack Nicholas and Jack Nicholson. I mix up those names too many times. So we're just going to say the golden bear, the golden bear, another guy. Not, I, I wouldn't say he was crazy fit, but in shape the whole time of his, of his career. But then you also have guys like John Daly who looks like he just came out of a bar every time he plays and just had a plate of nachos and a hot dog in his hand and he wins tournaments he's not the best player ever but he is created a career for himself and a brand around his style and it works so you don't need to be in particularly great shape to be playing golf but it helps and they say that his game wasn't the same they were saying, like, before the trial and everything, like, he was a great, like, his scores were crazy. He set the record at Lakeside Golf Course for the lowest score ever. He beat pros that were just playing through all the time. And it was just crazy then that he wasn't this way. His fin his friends actually, you know, defended him. Like, he is great. Just give him a chance. Get him in this the structure of a professional tournament to get used to that. But his scores were just high every time. But he actually got sponsored by Wilson. Wilson! Wilson! Yeah, <laughs> that Wilson from Castaway. So Wilson Sporting Goods sponsors the tour for exhibition games in Hawaii, the Philippines, and Japan. And he got dropped before he even made it back to the States by them. He wasn't having the great love of the game, the success he had, because for one, he had stepped back from the game for years that he could have. Imagine if he took those seven years and just played in the tournaments. What would have been different? But if he was in the celebrity status that he was, would he have had the money and the fanfare to get away with the murder, or not the murder, <laughs> with the armed robbery charges that he had? 
he may have been convicted for those whole seven years and in jail and still not gotten it. So it's, would he have, it would have been a chance. You don't know what would have happened. So he, he gets back to the States and he secretly marries Esther Plunkett, who already had two kids. She was a widow. And this was a positive things in his life, especially since she actually helped him with the financials because she was a widow and got, inher- got the all the inheritance from her passed away husband. So he, he continued to try. He entered the U.S. Open but didn't even make the cut. And so basically he just kind of kept trying but just wasn't good enough, and he gave up. He entered into investment opportunities with some of his friends, including John Wayne, <laughs> and they – the investment went bad, and they even su- sued him because of all the bad investments they had. In 1947, unfortunately, Esther passes away, and that's when his life really just takes a downturn. He can't, he can't get back where he was, and he's not feeling the way he was. And within two years, he's arrested for drunk driving and had a heart attack. Nothing after basically his time in Hollywood before the trial really seems very happy. He was happy with Esther and he the fact that he didn't have to worry about money with her. But it was just too he just struggled for years and years after. And he had a dozen ideas for making money, but none of them ever panned out. He was just that constant he almost seems like a con man. I don't know if he actually was a con man. I mean he was a smooth talker, so he could definitely talk you into things. I mean if he's talking to John Wayne into investment opportunities, I think he's probably pretty, pretty smooth talker. But he also has, you know, high-level friends that he did have, and he may have lost touch over time. And unfortunately, in May 1972, he has another heart attack and passes away. And this kind of shows you here how how much his celebrity status had fallen, and how much his friends just fell by the wayside, whether it was bad investments or him just forgetting about them because he was focused on trying to get his golf career, which wasn't happening. But his body stayed in the mortuary for a week before anyone claimed it. And finally, a friend identified Montague and planned planned a funeral service for him, but only 29 people attended. There were thousands of people throwing themselves at him, wanting to be a part of this whole ruse when he was on trial 25 years earlier. And then when he passes away, almost no one cares. And let's take some time and look back at what was John Montague, Laverne Moore, who was he, and everything back at the main points. He was a smooth talker son of a gun. He talked his way out of being in an armed robbery multiple times, talked his way into meeting with famous people, living with Oliver Hardy from Lauren Hardy, like living with him, having friends like Bing Crosby and John Wayne. He was a smooth talker that loved the spotlight. He loved that in Hollywood he was the man. So a couple of myths about him. Once used a clubhouse window, propping it up with just a water glass, chipped a ball, chipped balls continuously through that propped open window, 
without hitting the glass or the wall at all. Just straight through that window over and over and over. He hit a box of matches off a Cocker Spaniel's head, and the dog never even blinked. He didn't even realize it. They also say he once held a car up for somebody to change the tire instead of jacking it up. He was that strong. He is said to still have the lakeside record at the golf course for shooting a 58 on their unfortunately he had 15 minutes of fame that faded out and he never really lived up to his athletic potential which shows be smart <laughs> be smart when you're young there are many athletes not just mon just not Laverne Moore that miss out on their opportunity to be great in athletic endeavors because they do something criminally unsmart because they need the money, they need food, they feel trapped, they feel pressure. Unfortunately, that's how it goes. And he is definitely one of them. And hopefully people can learn from this and not go down the same path. Because if you have a gift of athletic prowess, take it and run with it and don't do anything stupid. And that is John Montague, a.k.a. Thank you for listening to the Sports Moments Podcast. I hope you enjoyed today's tale. If you did, please give us a review or five stars or wherever you listen to. It helps us grow our community and help tell more engaging stories. You can follow us at Sports Moments Pod on Instagram and Twitter. We post pictures about stories what happened today in history, different things like that. Just try to be a good sports overall social media company. We still are a new podcast. We're still growing, still working on a few kinks, still working on our website. So if you would like to contact us with a great topic or your view on any episode we've done, you can email us at sportsmomentspodcast at gmail.com. And as we grow, we're looking for great youth sports charities to donate to because I think it's important to give the youth a chance to learn about sports and gain that love so they can become sports historians as well. So if you have a, a great charity that you are involved in or you think we should help out, please contact us as well. Again, thank you for listening. And come back next week for another episode of the Sports Moments Podcast, where every sports moment deserves its replay.